Dinner time is here, and it's time to cook. Those leftovers sitting in your cooler, they're just looking at you, taunting you. Cook us, eat us, cook us, eat us. Ugh. But how? Reheating them to be what they were might just make hot yuck. And who wants that? Is there a way to use those leftovers in a creative way to enjoy them and give them a new life? The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 158. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Save your sanity. Avoid the wine store foolishness and buy your wine with the help of your own wine consultant at California Wine Club. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash cawine to pick the right wines for your holiday party hosting or as gifts for everyone on your list. Shop culinarylibertarian.com slash cawine for informed wine selection. Today's episode is a listener-inspired episode. One listener asked me how to reheat steak fries without drying them out. That question led to this idea for this episode, and this listener offered uh, the top five leftovers that present a reheating issue. Uh, This particular person cited pizza, chicken, french fries, pasta, and mac and cheese. I like this idea as an episode because we get to cover a few issues. If you do order out or dine out and take the leftovers home, What to do with them is a good question. If you have a salad that now is a bit limp and watery, is it trash or can it be used? At first glance, this might seem a no-brainer. Just reheat the original thing, right? Well, that's mostly what we do here with Thai food. We order enough for lunch the next day, and it comes with enough sauce that it's not really a problem. But, Steak is reheated as steak. Fish can be reheated as fish to be made hot, but of course, cooked food doesn't just get hot again. It also cooks more. Now, overcooking leftovers creates, well, that's that hot garbage we talked about. Hoping to, re- hoping to reheat them and make them palatable may be hoping against the impossible. So, as this listener asked, how do you do such a thing as make leftovers edible? This challenge is, as I see it, an ingredient challenge. Think of chopped, and the mystery ingredients are last night's leftovers plus your pantry, and fridge. French fries reheated to be French fries will probably make cardboard. Now, I recognize 
the significant part of this challenge is the formerly hot and delicious hot food is now cold and in need of attention and possibly not particularly delicious. Let's start with those french fries. As cold sticks of mealy starch, they are not inspiring. Cut them into squarish pieces. Brown them in a seasoned cast iron or nonstick pan. Turn them often so all sides get browned and hot, but especially the cut sides. Add some diced onions and peppers, let those cook, and you have potatoes and brine. Or add a few scrambled eggs on top of those potatoes and onions and peppers, and it's an omelet. Say those fries came with a steak dinner, and there's some of that left too. Slice the french fries lengthwise and cut the steak against the grain into thin pieces. Brown the potatoes just as described for the dice, but make sure that the, the cut side gets nice and brown. Turn them over so everybody gets hot. Remove those fry pieces to a plate. Sear the steak on both sides. Not too long because it's thin to get some heat back in there. And now you have at least made a snack. If your standard inventory at home in the fridge includes some kind of lettuce, you've just made the garnish for a steak salad. Dinner is done. Mostly. Working on that list of five leftovers, pizza seems pretty simple. Heat it on a pizza stone in the oven. Oh, sure, my cookie cook. Well, what if I don't have a pizza stone, huh? Huh? Well, then what? What then, huh? No problem. Heat a cast iron pan in a 350 degree oven. When the pan is hot, put the pizza slices in the pan to crisp up the bottom and make the top all nice and gooey again. No cast iron pan? No problem. Use a sheet pan. Use a saute pan. Use the false bottom from a tart pan. Heat up the griddle and use that. Looking at the leftovers may present the same dazed look as looking at a stocked fridge or pantry of ingredients. Leftovers are ingredients, just not necessarily in an obvious form. There's some story about how a sculptor looks at a piece of marble or wood or stone and sees the finished creation inside and then simply removes the extraneous marble, wood, or stone. That's why I don't sculpt. I don't have any marble. <laughs> and I just don't look at a hunk of marble or a big log and say, hey, let's carve another David. That vision doesn't exist for me. I get the idea of taking away the parts that aren't necessary to the vision of making whatever it is that's hiding in the wood. With cooking, and maybe more challenging in the creating part, is looking at the fridge or pantry and seeing the finished dish, or at least seeing what's possible. Let's consider that leftover chicken. The first challenge we've discussed, reheating something without making a cardboard. Science, in 2021, as a phrase, is getting a really bad rap. But 
There is a basic fact we can't overlook that overcooked protein dries out. It might seem like the right choice is to add liquid. Liquid alone isn't enough. If you've ever had a chicken noodle soup and the chicken was as dry as sand even while it's in the broth, that's a perfect example of how liquid doesn't make dry protein moist. Yes, I said that word. Cooking the coagulation of proteins is a one-way street. Nothing we can do will alter that. Medium well steaks cannot be cooked to medium rare. What we can do to leftover chicken or fried fish or grilled fish or that steak we just talked about is to add fat. We can also add heat, but we need to maybe also change the shape of the thing, which means really change the size. Cutting that steak into thin pieces works to our advantage. Getting some caramel on that piece of steak with those french fries for breakfast or the salad is adding both flavor, because caramel is flavor, but it's also adding enough heat to make it hot with nearly no coagulation of the protein, which is really what we want to avoid. We want hot, but we don't want cardboard. So those thin slices of steak and the french fries I just mentioned, add some eggs and you've got a perfect breakfast. A creamy base dressing is, in my opinion, a better choice than vinaigrette, but both have plenty of fat. The dressing choice is strictly my personal preference, but I will add that those commercial vinaigrettes are both too sugary and too tart at the same time, which is a heck of a trick. I prefer to make my own vinaigrettes, but that's another episode. Let's get back to that chicken. Chicken breast meat can be turned into a chicken salad. Even fried chicken breast meat can be unbreaded, and in this case, that breading is probably going to be trash. Chicken leg and chicken thigh meat can be added to a soup, or pull the meat off of the bones while it's still cold, dice that up, Add that to a pan with a little bit of broth, some white beans, some tomatoes, some fresh thyme, a little bit of festive virgin olive oil, some salt and pepper, and you have made something that's now both yummy and edible. Pasta is a lot like that protein. Cook it more, but instead of getting dry and chewy, it turns to mush. How it's like protein is neither of them are particularly fond of being overcooked. So, what to do? Spaghetti and meatballs can seem tricky. Depending on their size, one way to get the most from the meatball is to slice it in half, sear the cut side in a medium hot pan, and extra virgin olive oil. Yes, extra virgin olive oil. It's fine. You won't get arrested. If the meatballs are large, maybe cut them into thirds. Envision the globe and turn it on its side so that the equator is, is up and down. Now, where the 45th parallel is, make a slice. So you're kind of cutting off a little bit of the dome and cut the other end of the dome off in the bottom so you have this sphere and then these two little ends. Fry, those, fry all that into your pan. The reason for making a big thing smaller 
is to manage heat and let everything get hot in a quicker amount of time and also avoid burning. Caramel's good, burns bad. In another pan, while your meatballs are getting hot, heat the spaghetti as is with just a teaspoon or two of water. Add a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Let that kind of fry a bit in the pan. You'll need to move it around a little bit. Cooked pasta doesn't like to be moved around a lot because long pieces of cooked pasta become short pieces of cooked pasta pretty quick. But we have what we have to work with. Uh, if you let that fry a little bit, it does keep a nice texture to it, so at least it's something that becomes palatable. Macaroni and cheese might seem simple for reheat, but it can present similar problems. If the leftover mac and cheese is a stovetop style mac and cheese, well, the stovetop is the way to reheat it with just a bit of milk, but really just a little bit. One issue may be that sauce reduces and then it splits. That means it looks greasy, that some of the oil has come out of it. Uh, if you have made a boxed version versus a homemade version of stovetop uh, mac and cheese. The commercial stuff has has a lot of uh, added starch to the powder, so that to, part of that is to minimize the, um, the fat coming out because they told you to add butter to it. And there's presumably some fat left in the cheese powder that's in the packet. The homemade stuff is definitely going to have fat into it. So a little bit of milk, even water will do. But what we're going to do, because water is, when you add water to the hot mac and cheese, you're putting back what came out in the form of steam. So put that water in there, bring it hot, and then with a wooden spoon, we're going to risk breaking the, mac and, the macaroni, but give it with mild vigorousness some mixing to sort of emulsify everything back together. And generally that will work. It won't work the second time, but it'll work, it'll work for one. Once you have your hot mac and cheese ready to go, this is a place to maybe add some diced chicken breast or a diced leg and or thigh meat from that chicken. Cut them a little bit smaller so that the heat transfer happens quickly. You could saute them in a separate pan so that they don't have to worry about transferring heat and uh, then you can put them on top and it looks pretty. You can add some frozen peas that will thaw in the pasta. Uh, you can, I mean, whatever you want. Uh, pieced up green beans, peas of frozen broccoli, frozen cauliflower, you know, whatever, tomatoes. Um, there's, there's lots of opportunity here to turn this leftover mac and cheese into something that looks like a meal. If your macaroni and cheese is a baked version, like a casserole, uh, generally, when those are cold, they are pretty firm, which is going to be to our benefit. Uh, instead of cutting like a piece of cake wedge, try to cut something flat-edged, flat-sided, so you have something that you can sear uh, in that same seasoned cast iron pan or in the um, Teflon pan, nonstick pan, and, and get the pan hot. Now. Hang on a minute there, buddy. Get the pan hot. What do you mean, get the pan hot? How hot is hot? When a recipe reads, get a pan hot, that recipe is offering incomplete information. 
Ha ha. What is to happen in that pan? Cast iron pans and those enamel coated pans take several minutes to get any heat into them so that the pan actually holds and radiates the heat. Searing seems to suggest high heat, and for a steak, that is correct. For a high-starch, high-fat dish like baked macaroni and cheese, sear in the same hot pan used for a steak is going to risk making trash of that mac and cheese because it's going to burn. Part of the decision-making process about how hot a pan should be is understanding what is the thing being heated. I have one of those Le Creuset uh, enameled pans, and I wait four or five minutes for it to get and hold heat. And that's even at three, three and a half, one of those stupid push-button thermostats. I hate it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's medium-low heat, but it takes that long for the pan to get that much heat so that when I go to cook my eggs, I make eggs and I don't make mess. The main purpose so far is learning to see leftovers as just a different kind of ingredient. Consider a biscuit. Butter and flour mostly, some salt, some leavening, maybe some sugar, uh, possibly some dairy other than the butter. Butter and flour are also the ingredients for a roux. That's the thickening agent for classic veloutés and bechamels. Day-old biscuits, or two-day-old biscuits, are superb thickeners to make a soup. Soup? How do I make soup? You're talking about leftovers. Rotisserie chickens are whole birds, bones included. Now, one rotisserie chicken, they're generally about three pounds, they're kind of puny, will make a nice portion of stock from the bones, and honestly, I would use at least the first two joints, possibly all of the wing, and the leg bones, and the thigh bone, you're going to get a decent amount of, it's not going to be a huge amount of stock, but you get some flavor out of those bones, add some mirepoix, the carrot, celery, onions, add some garlic, you can make a nice stock, they turn that into a nice soup, so you're utilizing the thing you paid for, which was the bones, they came free when you buy the chicken. You've got these leftover biscuits. We have the makings for a nice soup. Bring your stock to a boil. And yes, you can use store-bought stock. Add, uh, take the biscuits and crumble them so they're nice and fine. And just drop them into the boiling stock, whisking that as, a, as you're sprinkling your biscuits in. Now, they're going to thicken kind of quickly, but flour doesn't thicken immediately. And flour... We have, we have two things happening. One, the flour has been baked and it already hydrated some stuff when we made the biscuits. So its full potency is missing. So more than we would use of a roux will be necessary of the biscuits to thicken that. But it also does a very interesting thing. Because it has already been baked, there is a... The, the the finished thickened soup with biscuits has a velvety luxuriousness that's hard to replicate 
from a roux thickened sauce. It can be done, but it takes a lot more time. So there's there's kind of a, a really pleasant result from using leftover biscuits to thicken a soup. So once you have added your biscuit pieces, and as they start to cook and expand, they're going to break down. And if you have a few pieces in there, so what? It's, it's just biscuit. It's nothing wrong. So let it cook about 20 minutes. So whatever starch is left is fully rehydrated and expands and does all the things it's going to do. Now, here's a great place for nice chicken of whatever you've got left over. Uh, add if you've got you know veggies left over from your steak and french fried dinner. Frozen veggies are fine. Seriously, there's nothing wrong with frozen veggies. I keep corn and peas in the freezer almost all the time. Uh, I have, well, breaded fried okra in the freezer, but I wouldn't put that in soup. There's lots of things to add to soup, lots of reasons to have some frozen veggies on hand just in case because it's fast and it's easy. What if the challenge isn't leftovers, but how to cook for one person? Ironically, the answer is make leftovers. Talk about that in a minute. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his tasting Anarchy Podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy Podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Many years ago, I worked at a Pure One store. I always brought my lunch. Lunch out anywhere nearby was easily $8 to $10, which then was pretty much an hour's wage. Work full-time, and it takes five hours of work just to pay for lunch, and there are still groceries to buy for the house. So, why spend cash on lunch when there's food at home? Buying food and cooking for a family is one thing, and that leads to leftovers in most likelihood than it does for being single. Cooking for one can be a real challenge. Lots of ramen and angel hair with garlic and olive oil. Buying food to cook for one usually means buying packet foods, frozen portioned foods or dinners or meals, and also eating out. And now we have this leftover problem that listener mentioned. There is a convenience in those options, but there's a cost too. Cook at, ho- cook at home for one, but cook two meals or cook three meals. Make dinner today and you make lunch for tomorrow. Meatloaf and mashed potatoes is a great lunch. It microwaves easily enough and... If you've had it with mashed potatoes for a few days, but really, who gets tired of mashed potatoes? They can also be used to thicken the soup. They can also be used as part of the structure for making a bread, but that's also another episode. And that's great bread. Oh my gosh. Here we like chili, especially now that it's getting cool. In our house, chili goes with Charlie bread. And that makes eight portions. They freeze nicely, and so does the chili. Lunch portions for some while. 
Now, shameless plug time. My cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, One Pot Meals You Can Make, makes fine dinner and lunch meals. If you have a crock pot and some knowledge of how to use it, many of those recipes also are good crock pot meals. I'll let a link to the book on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 158. Let's talk a moment about some future leftovers. The holiday party season is coming. Suppose in some alternate universe that people don't eat all the dessert or drink all the sangria. I know, but just imagine. Well, that sangria can be frozen in an ice cube tray. But what? Check Goodwill or your grocery store for ice cube trays. And now you have something with which to chill the next batch of sangria that will at least make a contribution to it when it melts. Use those same ice cubes to blend up a smoothie. Save the fruit from the sangria, puree that with some brandy, and serve it over those ice cubes for a very flavorful adult beverage. Desserts is a good challenge, both to make and for leftovers. Leftover layer cake, who are these people, that has dried out a bit, might do well to be turned into a layered ice cream and layer cake creation. Now, it isn't a cassata, but envision something kind of like that. It's not the same thing, but it's, we, we're kind of getting to that area. Line a bread pan with plastic wrap, cut the cake into half-inch pieces, not wedges, but straight-sided pieces, and place them together in the pan. You're going to like build a little puzzle here, one even layer. Then add an alternate layer of ice cream. Uh, maybe you're... <laughs> At Thanksgiving time, my grandma used to get the half gallon, real proper half gallons of a Neapolitan ice cream. And she'd open the whole thing up and cut from left to right slices. So everybody got a little slice of Neapolitan ice cream with an even amount of chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. And always, my cousins and I would eat it way too quick. And we'd all just, you know, cringe and brain freeze. But Tradition! Anyway, so open your half-gallon-ish of ice cream, cut slabs so it fits in your bread pan, and now you just build your dessert, store it in the freezer, and ta-da, you have repurposed a layer cake because somebody was an idiot and didn't eat it. Since it will be eggnog season soon, you could also, either in that casada-ish thing, moisten the cake with some eggnog before you freeze it, or put the cake in a bowl and drizzle it with eggnog, or eat the cake and drink the eggnog. You see where we're going here. Leftover flan can be eaten as is, of course, or whisked to smooth and use it as a dip for donuts or something else. It could possibly be used as a filling between pancakes or poured onto uh, waffles as just a nice little yummy, sweet, syrupy addition thing. Leftover pound cake can be toasted and topped with a compote or leftover flan or eaten with jelly for breakfast. Leftover pound cake would make a very interesting French toast. Try it as a cake popper. 
Slice brownies thin and dry them in the oven for brownie crisps. Slice pound cake thin and dry that in the oven for pound cake crisps. You know what? That would make really nice crumbs. For like a oh, put uh, you could you could make hmm. What do we do? We got cake crumbs. Well, cake so cake crumbs on the outside of cake pops. Sometimes you put cake crumbs in frosting for in the center for additional flavor or on top of uh, iced cookies. Hmm. <laughs> it sounds good. If you can start to visualize your leftovers as sort of the aggregate of the ingredients. So leftover pound cake is it's butter, eggs, flour, sugar. So what can we do with that? Leftover biscuit, leftover left pancakes, again, these are really strange people, uh, would function the same way as leftover biscuits with the big exception that the amount of butter in pancakes is less than in biscuits. But the idea is the same, that, that starch will thicken. Um, so it's, it's because, I, I, because I can't see David in marble, I understand that some people might look at leftover clamshells and say, "Dude, all I see is all I see is hot wings. I don't see soup. I don't see Tex-Mex, you know, stuff." I get it, but it's because cooking is probably easier than sculpting, and there's more forgiveness in making food than in chipping off marble. I think this is something you can do, and it's. It's a way to repurpose. Two things happen. You repurpose the, the thing that you have already paid for, and there's some, some frugality issues that I think are important to pay attention to. But the other thing that, that you're doing is, as you're looking at your leftovers as ingredients, you can start also looking at the shelves in the grocery store in a slightly different way, thinking about how do these things go together. Now, the I'm not as a as a movement. The fusion thing just left me behind, but I'm not opposed to putting together disparate flavors because they go together. Not not doing it because you can. Things that make sense together. If they taste good, to you who cares? Eat them. But learning to cook with leftovers is also learning to cook with the rest of the stuff and it grows your skills, it grows your confidence. And that's really the thing that needs to happen, that I want to happen for you is when you get better at doing these things, you're going to get better at doing these things. <laughs> it sounds like circular logic, but it's going to work. The more you practice, the better you get. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I will add a link on the show notes page to episode 56, which was the What Paintings Can Teach You About Cooking episode. There's some crossover material there which might offer some insight into how to see what's in your cooler, how to see how to see ingredients as flavors, where you look at a painting, you see colors and shapes, ingredients offer... They offer they offer taste textures. They're hot. They're crunchy. They're velvety smooth. Um, they they can be they can also offer 
where you see bright or dark. You can get you can get these kinds of sensations from your food. And if you start to see ingredients with a couple of different helps here, then your cooking should improve. And that's really the name of the game as far as I'm concerned. Uh, if you have a leftover sufferer in your life, share this episode on social media to that person. And please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. If you like what I'm doing here on this show, please support me at culinarylibertarian.com slash support. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.